Yo, what up, peeps? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast Food by a Software Engineer. I'm your host, Perry, and today I'm joined by... Absolutely nobody! <laughs> that was so stupid. <laughs> Shout out to the people who got that reference. Um, yeah, I'm joined by nobody today because I am doing an AMA, which stands for Ask Me Anything. Um, I've managed to compile a list of questions that, uh, you know, I've been asked throughout my whole life. And uh, yeah, I really just want to package it and put it inside a lovely episode on uh, this podcast. Um, if you think about it, this is actually episode 10, which means that there were nine previous episodes already where I had a guest stuck in a room with me, <laughs> uh, where I'm just throwing like dumb questions at them and they've been, you know, surviving the whole thing because they're obviously experts at their field. And hopefully it's been entertaining for them, for me, but also for, you know, you guys listening to this. So big shout out to everybody. Thank you so much for, you know, participating, um, which is also exactly what we're going to be doing, doing today. Um, when I was talking about the questions that I've managed to compile, shout out to everybody who's, uh, you know, sent some questions over so I could ask them and hopefully share the answers so that, you know, if you find inspiration on them today, great. Good on you. Do whatever you want. I don't run your life. But, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so for the people who don't know who I am, that sounded so pretentious when I said that. <laughs> who is Perry? Um, so I'm Perry. I was born and raised in Montreal, Canada. Uh, I work in tech as a software engineer. I've uprooted my life three times to work in Hong Kong, London, and now the Bay Area. I also run this stupid podcast. Ask me anything. I've got a list of questions here already, but if you're ever interested to ask your own questions, just ping me anytime. Uh, all my contact information is on my website, perrysu.com, so you know, go check it out if you want to reach out to me. Don't do it if you don't want to. <laughs> yeah, so what I'm going to do here is uh, I'm just going to run through them. It's literally ask me anything. There's kind of all kinds of different questions that I've received. So some of them is about, you know, like, how do you move to different countries? Or other ones are like, oh, how are you more productive as a software engineer? So I kind of categorize them in three sections. So the first section is a lot of it is my past, I guess. Um, the second section is going to be mostly about techie stuff. And last but not least, the third section is all the miscellaneous random fun things that uh, people have asked me. Um, yeah, let's dive into it, shall we? Of course we shall. Like, I decide what we do here is my show. <laughs> All right, the first question that I got is, what is it like being a French-Canadian in the UK? Yeah, it's pretty damn cool, because, I mean, when they do find out you're Canadian, first of all, you get mixed up a lot for being an American, because Canadians and Americans sort of sound the same. Uh, I'm not offended by it, but I do know some people are, so sorry for the people that get offended. But when people find out that, uh, when I mean people, when you have British people finding out that you're Canadian, they always come up and they're, they're always like, you're so friendly, even like before you say anything. So that's already, already a good, you know, positive thing, you know? So it's not really hard to meet new people when uh, they find out you're Canadian because you, you just end up being a bit friendly with them. And uh, everybody just loves having a good time anyways. But uh, to be more specific though, being a French Canadian in the UK, it's quite interesting because, I mean, the UK is right next to France, which is, you know, uh, where there's a lot of French people. So a lot of times you, you're going to bump into French people in London much more than in Montreal, for example. Uh, so that was quite cool being able to speak French. You get to, you know, have fun, talk crap on people if you want in French, if you meet them. I was quite fortunate at my job. I, there were also like other French people uh, that I was working with. So, you know, get to, you know, talk a bit of French as well. But I personally never use French professionally, so it never really mattered as much. But it really did make the experience more fun living in London specifically and being able to speak French uh, and also people recognizing you're a Canadian. You just all have a good time. I keep on saying that. So what is it like being a French Canadian in the UK? 
I think it's absolutely fun. Um, people are very, you know, open arm welcoming, and then it's really easy to bond with other people uh, like that. The second question is, were you able to really settle in the UK? Or did you ever have second thoughts about coming back to Montreal? That is a great question. Because, um, I mean, you could apply this to anywhere. Were you able to settle in Africa? Um, so yeah, so the first part is, was I ever able to set up in the UK? I was actually, I was very fortunate to have met people that made me feel homely. And uh, there were a lot of instances, for example, a lot of times if I, for example, didn't go back home for Christmas, uh, there'd be somebody inviting me to, you know, hang out with them over Christmas kind of thing. So uh, those moments really helped out the whole experience of living in a country that I've never set foot into until, you know, I jumped in there, working there. So um, I did manage to settle just because of the amount of great, great, great people that I've met. And uh, honestly, I think that's crucial to anybody, uh, you know, living anywhere, whether it be at home or outside of your country. And uh, do you have second thoughts about coming back to Montreal? I honestly, there, I feel like I was having way too much fun in London, especially to be thinking about that. I've, I mean, obviously, I've missed the moments where, you know, my mom was cooking and like having my mom's cooking is definitely something that I think about quite often. Uh, even just hanging out with everybody at home, actually. But uh, I think uniquely uh, in London, it's just so buzzing and so exciting. There was something new to do every single week that that kind of kept more space in my thoughts than always thinking of moving back to Montreal. But it was definitely scary. The first few weeks when I was there, when I was living in a couple of hostels, it was like, why did I ditch my lifestyle living, you know, very comfortably <laughs> to like jump between three different hostels trying to live in a city that I've never set foot in. Uh, but yeah, really glad that it happened. And if you ever have doubts of doing it, I think just get out of your comfort zone, do it. If you don't like it, just go back home and you could always compare to, you know, what you want to do later on. So that is basically how I felt about if I wanted to move back home or not. So the next question we got is, how did my personal life get affected by moving? Um, a lot, guys. <laughs> like, when you think about it, is that you're, when you're say, moving, I didn't move to like from one city in Canada to a different city in Canada. I just moved to a different country completely. Uh, and honestly, it was hoping that it works. There was no guarantee. I barely knew anybody when I first moved to London. Uh, the only other person I knew actually was my cousin who was still in school. But other than that, it was really, really scary. So in terms of like my personal life, um, I mean, the non-assurance of anything working out is definitely like super, super on my mind at that time. But and also like you got to think about other relationships, I guess. Um, just being physically distant to everybody else that I knew that I grew up with, that was really scary as well. So I guess that was probably the biggest impact on my personal life. Uh, if we start talking about like family-wise, like this is kind of like the time when you move out and then uh, you don't get to see your brothers every day anymore. You don't get to see your parents anymore. You don't get to see a lot of people that you hang out with every, uh, every day. Those are the biggest impact. So that uh, definitely took a big toll on it in terms of my personal life. But uh, thank God it's, you know, the modern times allow you to be in contact with them whenever you need to. So shout out to everybody working on a communication system, communication system sorry, such as, you know, Facebook Messenger, uh, texting, WhatsApp. Uh, texting doesn't even work that well because I didn't have my Canadian number anymore at that time. So even that was a pain. But um, yeah, I think most of the impact is my personal life, uh, you know, relationships with other people. But at the same time, you get the opportunity to develop new 
uh, relationships with other people that you meet on, you know, on your journey at the end. So uh, there was a, you know, kind of a little, little dip in personal life stuff happening, but it just goes on, man. You just end up building. It's always changing. Uh, and I think it's really just making sure of looking back and keeping up with everybody that has had a really good impact on you that kind of keeps up with my personal life at the moment. So the next question is, what made you move? Man, this, this is like a really broad question, but there was also one very specific answer. Uh, for me, in my head, it was more like, oh yeah, just a great opportunity to get more money. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, it was mostly a career decision in terms of the, the reason why I moved from one country to another every time has been uh, a job. So uh, I didn't go there blindly, fortunately. Uh, I, I kind of secure a position and then I move. So that was kind of like the mindset. Uh, if we want to broaden this question a bit of like, what made you move as in like, why didn't I just take a job in Montreal as opposed to taking a job in Hong Kong, London, or wherever else I'd be trying to get a job in is, I think it was really a mindset that the world is so big out there that I really wanted to check it out. And uh, fortunately, one of the great options is that London has a special, you know, treaty with Canada where the getting a visa is, well, for a younger person, like I was back then, <laughs> was quite, uh, you know, straightforward. So that was one of the opportunities. And when, like, you know, a lot of stuff needs to work together to finally have this opportunity come to fruition. So um, in my mindset was that if I don't do it now, I don't know when's the next time I'd be able to do it. So when these kind of opportunities showed up, when I first got the chance to move to Hong Kong to live there to work for a company at a design company, um, there was nothing in my mind that told me you shouldn't do it. Um, obviously, because like I was just doing part-time jobs at that time, and this is kind of like a career move, as people would say it. it. sounds really boring, but I think it just sounded fun, and you get to live in a different country, different city, different you know, culture. Uh, the world is big out there, so that is definitely the main reason why uh, I decided to move. And now the next question that follows up that is like, do I plan on moving again? Um, that's a funny question, because I recently moved to California. Uh, from London, I think maybe literally like four months ago. So, um, so that happened recently. So four months ago, I just had another major uproot where I moved to a completely different country, the States, and I've never lived in the States. I've visited, obviously, because I'm from Canada and we could go there like cross-border quite easily. But um, actually living in the US was quite scary. And uh, the question is, would I move again? Yeah, I would if the right opportunity comes up. If the right project comes up or if any kind of fun opportunity comes up, I'll definitely consider it. Mostly because uh, I think a lot of people would share some of the goals of trying to do as much as they can in their life. And that's the way I see it. Um, some people will do it by traveling, you know, uh, as much as they can in a year. Or some people will try to do it as exploring, you know, driving, going on road trips to many different places as they can. For me, my mindset is more like, I want to have lived and experienced a culture in different cities around the world as, you know, many different places as I can. And one of the means that lets me doing it at the moment is that I get to work in the city. And when you work in a city, that kind of, you know, translates to how you live in a city. So uh, that's kind of the, the mindset at the moment. So am I planning to move again? Not, not soon. I've only been in California for four months. But, you know, if there's anything that happens, uh, the world is way too big to say no to that question. And following up that, which is another good one, is how's California compared to the UK in general? 
Um, first of all, I like how it's kind of framed like California versus the UK because they're honestly about the same size. I don't know if it's true, but <laughs> somebody, somebody schooled me on that if ever I'm wrong. Um, so let's talk about general. How is it like living in the Bay Area compared to living in, the, in London, I guess? That's kind of one of the points I could tackle is living in California, the, living in the Bay Area, sorry, uh, the public transport is garbage. <laughs> I'll say that because um, you kind of get the luxury after living in London for three and a half years that uh, everywhere in, well, at least in zone one and two, is very well connected. You could go from one spot to another in less than 45 minutes or so. Um, so you would rarely find anybody owning a car, owning, you know, any kind of transport in London. But when you come out here in the Bay Area, is that um, you get, you, you have some sort of like public transport, but uh, it's definitely so much easier. The lifestyle will be so much easier if you have like a car or a motorbike or, you know, your own form of transportation. Uh, just because the, it's so much more vast, I guess, like area-wise specifically. You're not as condensed as London. And uh, you could definitely feel it when you, you know, you, you go to either of those places. Also, in terms of food-wise, um, price for food is quite similar. I guess whenever you go out in London, it's easily £10 plus. Over here, it's easily $10 plus. Um, and uh, I guess that's kind of one of the different lifestyle changes that you kind of get used to. Uh, in London, everything is tax included, which is always fun and easy to look at. Over here, you got to get your 15% tax and then you get another what, like tips, 15% tips on it. So that's the kind of difference that you kind of notice every day uh, living in both of these different places. And um, yeah, I guess that's basically it. That's the two biggest difference that I've noticed uh, ever since living in London versus living in the Bay Area. All right, so the next question is, do you ever plan on moving back to Canada? Um, yeah. Obviously, one day. Um, but I don't think it's going to be anytime soon just because there's so much in the world. I think this is just repeating what I said before in terms of the world is so big that I really want to try to do as much as I can now before I get too comfortable and just settle down on somewhere. But living back in Canada would, well, specifically Montreal, would be a dream of mine uh, when the right time comes. And uh, yeah, I'm definitely excited every time I go back to Montreal. So that has always been on my mind. But I think at the moment, in terms of like, Am I planning to move back to Canada anytime soon? Probably not. And I think this is like kind of the follow-up question to the previous one is, uh, why don't you work remote? Um, so for the people, I guess, who don't know what just working remote is, is basically as software engineers, I think we kind of live in a luxury lifestyle where you get to work from home or uh, work from wherever you're based if you're you know, comfortable with it. And uh, I personally don't, I guess, enjoy that lifestyle. I enjoy being at office because normally you get a sicker setup at the office if you ask properly. And, um, and even just the interaction with other people and other engineers, I think there's some, some sort of overhead that if you're always working remotely and relying everything through online stuff, it's not as concrete as just being face-to-face -face with other people. And if, even if just like drawing out stuff on a board and everything, that's one of the things that I personally enjoy uh, being this physical aspect to it. So uh, in terms of What's my opinion on working remote? It's, I mean, it's great that it's available. It's great that a lot of companies out there are allowing it. But for my kind of lifestyle, and I guess mostly my personality at the end, I think working remote is definitely not the best option for me at the moment. Um, I'm kind of covering my all grounds. I could be like, you know, a couple years down the line, you're going to catch me like just being at home all day and like working remotely from there. But hey, that's Future Perry's uh, lifestyle. So I'm not going to speak for him. All right, on to the next one. 
Was Abbott a waste of time? <laughs> um, yeah, this is a good one. Uh, so Abbott, John Abbott College is the college that I went to before university. So this is, uh, in Quebec at least, you got a pre-university school that you go to. So you're about maybe uh, age of 17, 18 when you go to there. And it's a two-year uh, program called CGIP that we had to do in Montreal. And I went to John Abbott College. So specifically, was Abbott a waste of time? If we look on the technical side, so during that time of li my life, I was studying a lot of life sciences. So in terms of the actual content and everything, that has nothing to do with what I'm doing today. So content-wise, it was a complete waste of time. But um, if we look at the other thing that uh, I could say that it was not a waste of time is, number one, all the people that I've met there, they were super impactful. Um, but yeah, those, you, you really get the chance to meet so many great people from different, mostly schools that you don't expect to have this mingling with. So um, specifically in my case, John Abbott was so far in the West that I studied high school in downtown. So when I went to John Abbott after, uh, I just ended up like, you know, being a lot much closer to people that live in the West, which is, I mean, not that there's anything different than people living in the West versus the uh, other bits of Montreal, but that was one of the things that was great. And uh, I think, you know, just ended up being meeting a lot of people that I still keep in touch today that, uh, you know, we joke around a lot and we just keep up in life with everything. So that was one of the great things that made John Abbott not a waste. Uh, the second thing that was quite interesting is that when you're taking all these other like life science classes that has nothing to do with what I'm doing today, um, a lot of, I guess, the practices of the methodology of, you know, how you write your notes, I guess, or how you schedule your time. So I played lacrosse when I was at Abbott. and being able to like look a bit into the future in terms of planning, oh, this day I'm going to be late because I got to stay after to, you know, to go to practice, lacrosse practice after your usual day load of school and classes. So that's one of the, I guess, after effect is being, you know, in this process, everybody has to go through it anyways. You kind of find what you're comfortable with, what you're good at in terms of planning your life a little bit. So I think from a macro point of view, uh, Abbott was not a waste of time, but I think from a micro point of view was not super relevant to what I do today. Shout out to Abbott though, had really, really good times over there. All right, so the next question is, why do I not have a LinkedIn? Um, yeah, because screw LinkedIn. <laughs> I think, first of all, is uh, I do remember the first wave of LinkedIn coming in and everybody was on it, whatever. I, I'm usually quite a late adopter to any kind of new trend or technologies or anything out there. So um, and I think that kind of persisted up until today where I don't have a LinkedIn because I've always found some substitute or something else to do it. Uh, so the reason why I don't have a LinkedIn today is mostly because um, I'm too lazy to build it from scratch again, as in I got to go on there and start having all these connections or whatever. Yeah, it's great. Um, it's a terrible thing to say if you're listening to this and like, oh, maybe I should like reconsider hiring Perry. Um, no, I'm kidding, though. Uh, LinkedIn is great, honestly. It opens up so many opportunities for every different people of every different kind of, you know, careers at the end of the day. But um, I think there's a lot of equivalents out there that is available to specifically software engineers. So fortunately, I've been able to use all these other tools to, you know, kind of work out my career and really try to find different opportunities. So, um, so reason number one of me not having a LinkedIn is because uh, there are alternatives out there. And I think the number... Another way of looking at why don't I have a LinkedIn at the moment is that it's gotten to a point where it's, I guess it's a norm, everybody has one, that even if you have one, uh, the standing out factor is not completely there. Yeah, you could have a lot of good credentials on it. You could have a lot of good, you know, academic stuff on it or a lot of good work stuff on it. Um, 
which is where you flex all those, you know, <laughs> all those, all those credits to you. But I personally, I don't think, I don't think I have super great credits in everything. Um, I went to decent unis. I went to good unis actually, but um, it, I feel like it doesn't fully reflect on who you are at the end of the day. And uh, and the way to emphasize that, if I use my other means at the moment, when I apply for new jobs, I usually send them to to you know uh, a web page that I built or something, so that you know it's definitely much more personal than just seeing my profile on LinkedIn. And one of the downsides that people have been talking about nowadays about LinkedIn is that you always get recruited all the time. So I don't know if it's true because I don't have a LinkedIn, so <laughs> I don't really get to experience it. But apparently, you get reached out quite often, and depending on you know your current position and if you like it or not. It's good, but I think in my mindset is that I don't really need that kind of noise at the moment of people reaching out to me all the time or new opportunities that I've never spoken to. Uh, I could be missing out on law, don't get me wrong. If I had one, my life could be very, very different than what it is today, but um, this kind of puts me in the zone of, you know, trusting myself and being out of the norm a little bit and still, you know, accomplishing what I want to accomplish with or without LinkedIn. Uh, But yeah. I feel like it's a great tool. Uh, there's a reason why it's so much buzz and it's basically a noun at this point. So um, that is the reason why I don't have a LinkedIn at the moment. What's the best toilet you've ever used? <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for the question, Adam. Um, what is the best toilet I've ever used? Okay, first of all, context. Uh, people ask me this because on my Instagram, uh, whenever I go to like public places, whether restaurants or you know hotels or any kind of public space, if there's a public toilet, I'll usually go there and review it. It's a simple, you know, star system. How many stars? I think out of five. Uh, how great that public toilet is. It has to be public because it needs to be accessible by everybody. Uh, just so that, you know, it's an even ground of comparison. Um, but yeah, when uh, I think this, is, this all started when I was living in London, where we, uh, part of my job, we get to get invited to a lot of like fun places. And a lot of them are kind of, you know, a little bit luxurious. So getting an insight of what a really fancy toilet looks like. Um, so I started doing that, but there are a lot of cases where there are a lot of crap toilets, so I'd, I'd give it like one or two stars at the end of the day, or zero stars if it's really bad. But to answer the question, what is the best toilet uh, that I've you know, used? I'll have to give it to Labs Camden. It's one of the venues in London. Uh, they just have extremely cool... Like, <laughs> I don't know why I'm describing this. Uh, so basically they have like black matte finish like faucets. Uh, they had individual cubicles for every single toilet out there. Um, they have a hand wash and a hand lotion thing. Like there were so many good aspects to it that I clearly remember that moment. And I think it just felt really, really good. So um, that is the best toilet I've used. How long is my hair and how long did it take to grow? Yeah, I get, I get this quite a lot, actually. <laughs> Especially, you know, if, we, if I meet somebody new or whatever. So currently my hair is stupid long is probably how I would describe it. Uh, it goes all the way down to, to my butt, basically. So it's really, really long. Um, I started doing this maybe summer 2012, if I remember correctly. There wasn't really any purpose behind it. It was more like I was kind of tired of, you know, having an actual hairstyle and like keeping up with it that if I keep my hair a little bit longer, I don't have to do it in the morning. And uh, I can just wake up and just go kind of thing. So that's kind of how, how it started. Uh, throughout the years, just kind of, you know, changed a bit. I started shaving the side of my head. So I used to have both sides of my head shaved, but keeping the middle really, really long. Uh, but nowadays, I only keep one side shaved and the other side just the same or whatever. And, you know, um, I don't really put much more thought behind it because obviously I see myself every day and like, you don't really notice your hair growing longer and longer. So I just never noticed it throughout this whole year. But 
when I come back and meet somebody after a couple of years, like, holy crap, your hair is really, really long. Um, it's really shocking because for me, it's like it's the norm, but it really shocks people at the end. So <laughs> when is it going to go? I don't know. Don't ask. Um, I'll think about it. It'll be, it'll be for, for a good reason. And actually following up with the next question is, why don't you cut your hair? Um, I don't cut it because of, I don't know. I don't, I don't see the need to right now. Uh, the only thing that's quite annoying is that whenever, you know, you, you wash your hair, like when you, when you go to bed, you always have like hair everywhere in your face and it's just a pain in the butt. But, uh, no, I think it's, I'm just keeping it cause, uh, I don't know. It's easy to maintain nothing, nothing too crazy about it. I don't have to, you know, uh, go to hair, uh, go get haircuts as often as I need to. Um, yeah, I think from a logistics point of view, like keeping it, I have nothing to lose doing that. But um, why don't I cut my hair? It could also be just like, eh, I'll, I'll see how long I can keep up with. I feel like a lot of things in my life I've said that for. And uh, this just happens to be one of them at the end. So the other thing that I said about how long I can keep up with is how long can I keep up being an idiot on doing anything I do? So, <laughs> um, But yeah, that's mainly the reason why I don't cut my hair. Um, you know, as I was mentioning, it might happen soon, it might not. But when it does happen, I'm pretty sure a lot of people uh, will, you know, be just as shocked as if I kept it this whole time. And just to have another follow-up to that is, how much would it cost to cut my hair? <laughs> um, honestly, I don't think it's a, it's, it's definitely not a issue of money to cut my hair. I think if you really want to put me a number on how much would it cost me to cut my hair, I think it has to be life-changing enough that I don't have to lift a single finger for the rest of my life, but obviously that's not realistic. Um, yeah, I think there's, I don't think there's honestly a good monetary reason to cut my hair. It's mostly just how I feel. And then it could honestly switch today from tomorrow and be like, no, I don't like it anymore. I'm just going to cut it. Uh, but I think that's something that I don't think too much about in my life is I'll just leave it like that until something changes at the end. So, uh, but the thing is like a lot of people have been recommending, uh, you know, if ever I do cut my hair, you know, raise some money for it, that'd be a really good cause to do that. So, uh, that might be part of the plan. Uh, but I think, yeah, if, if ever somebody wants to pay me like billions of dollars to cut my hair, more than happy to, it'll be gone by tomorrow. So, hey, you know where to find me, parisu.com. <laughs> All right, next question we got. When did you realize you became an adult? <laughs> this is so much different than all the hair stuff that I was literally just talking about. Um, yeah, that's a good question. When did I start realizing I'm an adult? Um, I think the the really concrete thing is when I started having to cook for myself um just because I've been so blessed that my parents has always you know been been there uh feeding me mostly so having the first moment where you realize that you're not gonna have somebody else cook for you that's I guess the most concrete moment that I really realized that I became an adult uh but if we're talking about like you know more important stuff is when you start noticing that uh you know nobody else out there is gonna schedule your dentist appointment or nobody else is gonna you know, remind you that you have to pay your phone bill kind of thing. I think those are kind of like the, the signs that you're kind of living a more independent life. Uh, so that kind of makes you more of an adult. But um, yeah, I think you don't really notice it from one day to another. You kind of notice that like after a week of cooking for yourself, you're like, oh, I wish some like my mom could cook for me again kind of thing. So that's kind of like the slow realization that you kind of become an adult at that point. So that was maybe when I was 21 or 22, somewhere around there. So um, yeah, so I guess that's kind of like the, the obvious impact is, you know, when you move out, nobody's cooking for you anymore. So that's quite obvious. But I think all the other stuff that I was mentioning in terms of 
you slowly have much more responsibility of keeping your life together and everything. Those kind of just like sneak up on you and you kind of, they're more norm before you realize that you're becoming that at the end. All right, so what do we got here? We got, what is up with my Instagram and what does it mean? <laughs> love, love talking about this all the time because uh, I'm so overrated about it. Um, yeah, so currently on my Instagram, I kind of have a series of photos of me just lying down in front of different uh, places around the world, I guess. Um, so, hey, go check it out at Dr. Poor on Instagram if you want to <laughs> see what's going on. But um, yeah, that's kind of my way of, I guess, remember, like keeping in memory uh, the different places I've been to and just, you know, sharing it with everybody, which is what Instagram is for at the end. Um, but what is up with it? It's basically the concept is uh, the first ever time I've ever done that pose that uh, I keep on doing on all the photos that is really, really weird because people give you the eye when you do it. Um, I did that first thing where I'm lying on the ground, kind of like a dead body uh, when I was at my university graduation. And the thought behind it was that that's honestly the mindset of every single student out there, whether you've done it really well, like done university really well or whether you've done terrible in university. I think that's a common shared feeling that everybody is basically beat up by the end you graduate. And it was kind of just a expression of, you know, what instead of saying, oh, I'm so fed up with the university or I'm so done with it or whatever, you just end up lying there. The world stops for a moment. And uh, so that's the kind of pose I did that at my uni. So one of the, I guess, main entrance, you could see one of the iconic building of McGill. I just... Uh, did a dead pose in it. And I was in all my graduation gown and everything. So I got my brother to take that photo. And yeah, I think that kind of just reflects on um, the, the, you know, the mindset then. But then if you think about it now, is that like, it, it always feels like an up, like, it always felt it's only getting better from that point. So that's, I mean, that's kind of carried through all the other places that I've been to since. So if you look at the series of photos, I think a lot of them are from different locations like Malaysia, from Singapore, from France, Germany, uh, I'll usually find like a iconic uh, landmark in that town and I'll just do that pose just to remember, you know, uh, where we started and if how long I could keep up with. That's the other thing that I mentioned before. What other dumb thing I could keep up with is, first of all, my long hair, I'll keep up with that. And this is the other stupid thing that I'll do is that I'll keep up with that and see how long <laughs> uh, I'm going to keep up with doing it. So next question. Why did I start this podcast? I don't know. <laughs> no, I think uh, this is more something that, uh, I guess there's a lot of answers to it. Number one is that I think throughout my whole career, but even before I even started working in tech, that I talk a lot of crap. Like it doesn't, a lot of them doesn't make any sense. A lot of them are really random. A lot of them are not productive at all. But uh, I think one of the things that I get along with some people, not everybody, is that when I say something stupid and somebody else can keep up with it, then I just really enjoy it. And this kind of started this whole thing where I was like, might as well just record it. It's really not complicated to, you know, buy my first mic, which is eight pounds, and then just record conversations like that. So that was kind of what started this whole podcast, I guess. Uh, shout out to my first guest, Balant. He was so awesome to agree to do this kind of thing. And the concept was, hey, you know what, we, we, we both work in tech and uh, we'll just talk about random things and see if people are interested into it. And I think from that point, it, you kind of you modified, evolved it a bit. And then I think this, is, this podcast is definitely more for me than you guys. <laughs> I'm sorry for that. I think this podcast is for me to be able to, you know, learn about stuff that I'm not an expert at. 
Uh, and I think that's kind of what I really got the opportunity to to do so far. I'm I'm so excited when I get to talk to you know like uh, like a designer. Um, I work in you know in in engineering, but a lot of the designs are usually done by somebody else. So uh, that was a great opportunity for me to learn new things, and I wouldn't find a reason to be able to do that if it wasn't for this podcast. Obviously, I could just reach out to you know a designer to do it, but I think this is just much more fun. Uh, it's more impactful for me. It, sticks in my brain a lot more and then at the end of the day we get you know an, an episode coming out of it so yeah thanks tom the designer for that episode there um so yeah i think those are mainly like the first reasons why i started this podcast and uh i think it really also uh it's a good feeling to be able to share something that somebody else is going through uh that you could feel as well i mean it's really weird like it's it's not my responsibility to be responsible for everybody doing good out there but I think one of the great common story that I keep on hearing is that somebody wants to get into tech, but uh, they don't know how, or they don't really talk about it, or that kind of thing. So one of my favorite episodes that I've made for this podcast is when I was speaking to Joe Summerhays, uh, when he was saying, like, I want to get into tech. And then that episode was basically kind of looking at the journey of somebody who didn't go to tech originally. And then, like, they're working full-time tech now, and it's really great to see. And the thing is, like, this conversation I would have with so many different people, but they didn't know, they obviously don't know each other. So that was one of the ways to being like, hey, look, there's a lot of other people in that position out there like you. And then from then on, if you, if I end up talking to another guest that is in a different field, like uh, if they're a whatever tech recruiter, uh, then they could kind of share the same kind of feeling over there. So um, there's definitely a selfishness to this where it's like, I get to learn so much from somebody but also if i'm going to put it out there a lot of people could listen to it and kind of relate to that and if you think about it the bigger picture is that later on you're a lot less uh you know scared of tackling new projects if you know that these other people exist out there that you can also you know if you ever want to rely on them uh they're there so yeah the the reason for this podcast there's many of them why did i start this podcast is because i talk a lot of crap to begin with but also uh i love seeking out you know, new knowledge from experts in their field. And if ever I get the chance, like this one, to, you know, use this to answer some questions and share some of my knowledge out there, sorry, um, this is definitely a fun way to do it. So, you know what? If you want to start a podcast, you do it. I'm more than happy to help you out. Those are my reasons. Let me know what's yours. All right, what do we got next? What is it like for my first job being in a startup where the future of the company is unstable versus a multinational company? This is a great question because uh, I actually get asked this quite a lot, um, which is quite funny because every company I've joined, they've all been startups. So um, I can't really speak for, you know, working in a massive company like Fortune 500 one. But uh, fortunately, I've been speaking to a lot of people who's been in that position and really just try to compare, you know, what's the difference between the two. So um, what was it like, first of all, working in a startup? Uh, startups are named after startups for like, you know, different reasons. One of the ones that people keep on imagining is, uh, you know, startups is really hippie vibe. Uh, you get hammocks around the office or you could, you know, hang around with beanbags, ping pong tables, like pool tables everywhere. And uh, everything is a little bit unstructured. I guess some of it is true. Um, I mean, the startups I've worked at, uh, some, some of them had a pool table. Other ones had like, you know, uh, beanbags and stuff. So I think the idea of a startup is that the biggest difference between working for a startup and a bigger company is there's a lot less structure and, I guess, regulation, if you want to say, uh, within a startup as opposed to a multinational. Um, what I mean by that is that 
if you ever want to get something approved or if you want to get a new idea out there, if you want to get some new features out there, there's less hurdles to go through when you're at a startup than a multinational company. So um, that's kind of my experience that every time I've seen projects, like as the startups mature, yes, you're going to have more like, you know, uh, restraints on, you know, uh, what, what gets approved or what doesn't get approved to, to be worked on and stuff. But uh, I think from my point of view of only working in startups whole time and if I ever felt, you know, uncertain about my future just because the whole scenery of startups to begin with is very unstable, as somebody probably mentioned nine out of 10 startups don't make it out there. Um, how did that impact me at my job kind of thing? Um, I mean, at the end of the day, it, it, it is something that you think about, but I think a lot of times before you get into projects like that, you kind of you look at it and you kind of feel uh, in your mindset how long this is going to last kind of thing. But um, nobody could ever tell. Something could shut down tomorrow and you wouldn't be able to tell. So why did I decide to do this? It's not really a decision, actually. It was like, I'll take whatever op- opportunity that kind of matched my criteria at that time, which was I get to work in a different country. I get to work in tech. And um, yeah, if the project itself is you know something that I can relate to or something that I could understand to begin with, then that's, those are kind of like my criteria. So it didn't really matter if I ended up in a multinational company or a startup. Uh, it was just fortunate that I ended up in a startup and I really got to, you know, see how it felt like working in very, very flexible teams. Um, <clears throat> being the, I guess being so close to everybody is that if you have a team that is, what, 25 compared to a team that is like 500 or like 1,000 people around the world, uh, you definitely see some kind of, some kind of difference. So, and uh, specifically addressing the fact that it was my first job or my first job was a startup. Um, I feel like it's going to be a soaking up experience anyways. What I mean by that is that you're so young, you're so green, you're, you're basically a sponge and you're going to soak up any information, whether it be starting at a startup or starting at a multinational company. So um, something that could go wrong is that a lot of startups might have a little bit more bad practices here and there. But uh, at the end of the day, it's, you can't just you know, base your career on learning something that is always right. You got to be exposed to sometimes something that is not as good at the end so that you're exposed to both ends, right? Both sides of the metal. Um, so I think this is my experience in terms of only working in a startup, my first job being a startup. Um, I feel like it really broadened the horizons in terms of what can go really well, but also what could go really wrong. As opposed to if you have a, you know, multinational company that has been doing really well uh, for the past, you know, tens of years, decades, decades, sorry, um, there might be a little less opportunity to do so. I'm not saying that's completely true, but I think those are kind of the few points that I would have pointed out. Great question, though. That was really fun. <laughs> I think we're going to dive in a little bit more of, like, you know, a little bit more techie stuff. So this is uh, just going to be mostly me geeking out for a little bit. Let's, let's do that. Is uh, San Francisco slash Bay Area better than London for a software engineer? Um... In my head, at the moment, everything feels quite good in the Bay Area. And this is really hard to tell because this is a sample of one, which is me. Uh, but I think it, we, could, we could look at a couple different points objectively. So if we look at just like the salary range, that's probably very impactful for a lot of people choosing a career in tech or just any job, to be honest. Um, the average salary in the Bay Area is incomparable to salaries in London. The actual amount of work being done, like the amount of code being written and everything, um, the actual, like, you know, knowledge capacity that you need to do the task is fairly the same. From what I'm seeing is that people write code and then uh, you end up, you know, putting out features and that's how your company builds on top of it. So 
I have seen instances where you would have two people doing the exact same job, but then they get paid differently, uh, significantly more in the Bay Area than in London. Um, and it's really tough to change the scene at the moment. How, like, why, what's the solution to make it so that either the people in London gets paid as much as the Bay Area or vice versa? Um, I don't know the solution. I, don't, I, ain't, I, ain't got, I ain't got the answer to everything. Um, but I think that's one of the major differences that for, if we're talking about money-wise, um, the Bay Area is very incomparable to a lot of other places just because how, I guess, competitive it is. I think it's the fact that just because it's become quite a standard that if you offer anything less, people are either disappointed or you know, you don't, you're not matching up to other people's expectations. So unless there's like a really high change in the expectation of people who work in London and the engineers in London and they all expect like a higher salary at the end and then it gets really competitive. That's kind of how that's going to, you know, even out the fields a bit. But other than salary, though, if we're talking about like actual content that you're learning or actual work that you're building, I think there's it doesn't feel like there was that much difference in terms of how you implement something, whether you'd be implementing that in London or implement, implementing that, sorry, in uh, the Bay Area. So I guess that's one of the things that, you know, one of the great things is you could pick an engineer from any part of the world and they'll have some certain understanding of a concept that could be shared for somewhere with sorry, with somebody else around the world and um when we're talking about you know coding languages one of the great things is that you know it's transcends many different languages at the end of the day so um so in terms of work, when we're comparing the actual work of engineers um in the bay area versus london quite similar um i think one of my point before was that in my mindset before moving to california it was always about oh the standard is so much higher in the bay area like Maybe the code they write out there is so much cleaner. Um, they're, they're coming up with like much better algorithms. Somebody actually told me that's completely false, and I didn't believe that. <laughs> Somebody told me that I shouldn't have that mindset, uh, you know, just because it's not entirely true how it works at the moment. But also, I didn't believe it until I actually moved out here and see for myself. So for the people considering or specifically for the engineers considering like in the bay area in london which one is better if money's a drive then bay area is very very attractive there's a lot of incentives to be doing it over there uh but if your drive is more about um you know just learning good practices learning how uh to have an impact on other people with your code and everything both places have equally as many opportunities to do so and also if you're thinking about like career progression and everything um I think both are equally just as competitive in terms of if you want to climb up the ranks or uh, however you want to call it, uh, you still got to put in work at the end of the day. So um, in terms of like, you know, having this exposure of, you know, more recognition in one of the other, I think both of them are just as buzzing of a community for developers out there. Uh, you could have as much impact in both of them. But if you want to take the outliers at the moment, there's a lot of like, you know, all the CEOs of Facebook, Twitter, Jack Dorsey, you know, all the all these names that you hear related to tech uh, definitely more prevalent with the Bay Area, but London is definitely a hub for something like that similarly. So I'm very, very premature at the moment in terms of like, you know, my career in the Bay Area as a software engineer. But if you have the drive, I don't see you failing in either of those two environments. All right, what do we got? What was your journey like to becoming a developer? Yeah, it was, it was really fortunate. I think that's the better way of describing it. Um, I think a lot of stuff uh, kind of fell into places unwillingly and uh, people have been, you know, treating me nice <laughs> so far in a lot of the, the roles I've been into. So that's kind of how I see it. But uh, 
if if we want to look back at at what point this kind of started happening is, uh, I mentioned before that I did loads of life sciences up until my first year of university, and that's when I stopped because well I stopped doing health sciences because I don't know if I keep on going I would have been able to keep up with it but also when you come out of it was it something that I really want to be you know doing for the rest of my life so uh, at that moment it was kind of very fortunate the first time well not the first time this is the first moment of fortunate events that happened is that I didn't have to do a lot of applications to a different department to switch into computer science it was actually in the same department so it was literally I didn't have to speak to anybody I would just go online onto my portal that there was a drop down of my major and I could just literally switch it to computer science. So I went from physiology and math to computer science in literally 10 seconds of me clicking onto a page. And from that point, you just adjust all your schedules to, you know, comp sci classes and you kind of finish your degree with it. Um, so that kind of like the beginning of how I became a developer. Um, at that point, I didn't write a single line of code, by the way. Like, until until I've actually taken my first class of comp sci whatever, which is after I've switched program, I haven't written a single piece of code. Um, I've done a tiny little bit of HTML in high school, which everybody does, so I don't think that really can you know contributes as much. But um, well, it does. Sorry, <laughs> what I said previously was completely stupid. Um, yes, writing code in high school, one hundred percent. I'm one hundred percent for that. Uh, so. I mean, that kind of did it, but that wasn't a conscious decision, sorry. So everybody kind of went through that, so that's fine. The conscious movement of me starting to become a developer is when I changed my degree, started taking all these classes of comp sci. It's still a pain, though, going through uni doing comp sci, but I guess um, everybody's got to get a degree at some point, which is not true, but I'm from an Asian family, so that kind of is. <laughs> so yeah, so that kind of started kicking off the thing. That started getting the ball rolling. The second biggest moment is when I graduated, uh, I by that point I haven't had any internships. I haven't done any significant work in tech. I haven't worked for any big company. So that was the kind of worry in my head where it's like that could have been the end of my career. There, that could have been I got a comp sci degree and then I just end up doing a job that is not comp related. So what I got really lucky with is that I just put a lot of stuff out there, a lot of application around the world, and just to see if any one of them stuck. And fortunately, I got my first opportunity in Hong Kong. So. That was kind of the second moment of luck where somebody was willing to give me an opportunity to, uh, you know, use what I learned, you know, quite still premature at school, what I learned to apply it into real life scenarios of building websites and everything. So from then on, it was kind of do that, heads down, um, just keep on working at it. Uh, it's never going to be perfect at the end of the day. What I'm doing today is not perfect at the end of the day. So uh, it's really just making sure that you're very open to all kinds of different opportunities and uh, just having the confidence to, you know, do it at the end and not having to rely on somebody else to, you know, hold your hands and search you the ideal job at the end. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, it's a very short description of how my journey is at the end, but I think it's really those pivotal moments of uh, switching degrees in university and then getting my first position after uni that uh, kind of just propelled this whole thing about building websites and stuff. When did you know software engineering is what you wanted to do? Um, yeah, very, very similar to the, I guess, what I've been talking about this whole time is, I don't think that there was a decisive moment where um, I 100% wanted to be like, oh, I'm gonna be the best software engineer out there, I'm gonna do the rest of my life, I'm gonna, you know, build so much stuff and everybody could use it. Um, 
<laughs> they were, yeah, it was definitely not that. It was more like I ended up choosing CompSci in university because I didn't want to do one of them. So out of not liking one, I ended up doing another thing. And uh, just slowly discovering this path of fortunate events, uh, as, as I was describing earlier. But um, I think it's actually much later. I think it's more recent that I kind of realized that being a software en engineer is great just because you have the ability to, you know, be creative in a, in a technical way. Uh, what I mean by that is that if you have a concept of a blank canvas and you could build whatever you want out of it, uh, a, a website, an app, uh, whatever you want, um, you could do it and then you'll have other people being able to use it and then just really have this like impact on other people's lives. Um, when I say creative in a technical way is because I'm not able to, you know, write or draw or any actual when people say like creative, you know, arts out there. I can't do any of that stuff. My handwriting is absolutely garbage. But but if we talk about like, oh, give me a blank web page and I'll build something, you know, out of, of a scratch, whatever. More than happy to do that. More than capable of doing that. And that's something that I personally like. And this realization happened much, much, much later down the line. I think uh, the first initial thoughts were always like, oh, got to secure a job. Got to find like a, you know, a nine to five, like Monday to Friday kind of thing. So I could have have like a full time lifestyle kind of thing. But it's the appreciation that comes much later, and I think uh, that's what's important at the end. I'm kind of glad that I get to realize it now, and uh, hopefully, if you don't realize it and you're, you know, way deep down into your career, then this is a wake up call that you should really enjoy what you're doing. <laughs> that sounded so pretentious. I mean, yeah, that's basically the point: is look back a couple of years and see how much you've gone through, and if you've enjoyed so much of it and you realize it today, then I guess that's the moment when I realized that's what I wanted to do, is that after going through all the couple of years of, you know, just having my very beginning of a software engineering degree, and then just getting into different jobs and really looking back and enjoying all of it, then that's when today I could just look back and say, that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I wouldn't have said that at the beginning, but now I 100% can, so. <laughs> all right, next question. Is software engineering as hard as it sounds? If <laughs> if you ask me, hell yeah, it's so hard, man. I, I rip out my hair quite often because of problems that I can't solve immediately. Um, you always end up finding a solution, but there's a lot of moments where there's so many constraints that you end up being so challenged that sometimes you just feel like quitting. But at the end of the day, uh, the, one of the greatest satisfactions is when you actually do overcome it. Uh, you end up feeling, you know, so, so great about yourself, but also you take that experience and you apply it for the future tasks that you're doing. So in terms of how hard is software engineering, it's really hard. Can everybody do it? Yes. Um, I honestly believe that anybody could be taught how to, you know, get into software engineering. Um, the qualities to become a software engineer is something that everybody has to begin with. And it's just a matter of, you know, a bit of guidance, a bit of uh, you know, mentoring. And from that point, I think anybody can get into it. So it's like saying, is doing a handstand hard? Yeah, it is. But can everybody do it? I think so. If you put the right amount of practice and the right amount of work into it, then yeah, anybody could overcome that challenge and really do it. So um, I definitely don't think that the word itself or the field itself should be a good reason to stop you from doing it. Uh, what could stop you from doing it is probably how much work you want to put into it or how much time you want to put into that, that usually puts off a lot of people, which I could 100% say that's true for me with different other, you know, jobs or skills or stuff that I want to do, like playing a guitar, for example. But yeah, if you're a software engineer out there and 
it's seamless for you to work in it, then I'm so jealous. Teach me your skills, teach me your secrets. I'll be all ears for that. What would be your advice to any high school kid who likes the idea of getting into software engineering, but doesn't think they're smart enough because of the stereotypes surrounding the profession? That's actually a great question. Um, I think my advice would be, if you like it, do it. Not, not being smart enough shouldn't be a reason for you not to get into it just because no matter what, after high school, I think you're not smart enough to become an average engineer anyways. Um, there's no way somebody who graduates uh, high school or like graduates under an undergrad degree is going to be better than an engineer who's been working like maybe two years uh, from a full-time engineering position just because all the technical capability can be learned after um, your studies. So no matter what, coming out of it, you're still going to relearn everything. So if you have the intention and the interest of becoming a software engineer, that's 80% of the job done. Don't worry about not being smart enough because we're always going to be not smart enough to do something. I'm personally not smart enough to do a lot of things, but that's the whole point of experiencing it and having part of this journey that you keep on learning something new every day, not just before you graduate, but mostly after. Um, I say that just because the big bulk of all the skills that I'm capable of using in my day-to-day -day job nowadays has definitely been learned after uh, my studies. So I think what's really important is if you have the interest, go for it. It doesn't matter if you think you're smart enough or not. All right, what do we got next? What techniques do you use to balance the work priorities of a company with your own coding interests? And how do you deal with cases where they aren't aligned? Oh, another great one. <laughs> So a lot of times when you have, uh, you know, when you get assigned different tickets at work, uh, it's quite clear in terms of the goal, what you want to do if you're building a, you know, a new uh, database or you're building a new feature for your web app. Um, so now if we're talking about the priorities of work, a lot of it is definitely, you know, uh, generating money and having a lot of impact and making sure that, you know, we're growing as a company so that, you know, we could keep on surviving or we could keep on having, you know, better market share of what's going on. Um, so now if we compare it to your own coding interests, uh, they're not mutually exclusive. So if you're in a project that you're really involved into and you really like having the impact of seeing the numbers go up and everything, then it's great that, uh, you know, what you're doing out there is exactly aligned with the project, which is aligned with the goal of company, which, you know, everything is so harmonious and synchronous. That is like, honestly, the ideal scenario for anybody working in tech, uh, especially the managers, because, you know, they get the outcome that they want. Um, but we're talking about cases that uh, there are times when your interest is not fully aligned to the company's interest. What I mean by that is there are cases, it, maybe you want the goal to be the same at the end of the day, so that's fine. But the technology that they're using at a company is not the technology you want to be using it. So that could be some of the discrepancies um, between those two, uh, which is quite important that if you ever see yourself in a scenario where you're not finding the particular interest of a specific ticket or something else, then I think you have to find a way to compensate it, whether take your own time to work on what you're actually really interested in to, or just find another job that you're interested in. Um, it's a lot easier said than done. Um, I think these kind of issues don't show up as much when you're a greener engineer. When you're a when you start becoming an engineer, these don't really show up because everything that you touch is completely new, and when something is new, is always fresh, so your interest is always there. I think there, this really much applies to somebody who's touched a lot of different technologies already and been exposed to a lot of stuff, and 
I think it's just important to communicate and make it clear that uh, you need to have something that keeps your drive and interest going. So um, what are a couple of techniques of balancing this? Then I think one of one that uh, I personally find really, really good for myself is if ever there's something that I'm very interested in, but I cannot apply it to something that I'm working at work, basically, start a side project. Um, build another project using a technology that you haven't used before, but you really want to use, and then uh, build something out of it. It might, you know, really increase the interest that you got to begin with for that, or it could just like be a fix for, oh, I've tried it. It's not as cool as I think it is. So eh, maybe another one. So that's one technique that you can use to balance the work priorities. Um, another one would just be after that you communicated that uh, what you're working on at work is not specifically what you're most interested in. Uh, some companies are so big enough that you could actually switch different teams to a different project that uses maybe a different technology or something. So uh, I think that's one of the luxury of the bigger companies is that uh, this kind of communication, they have a lot of solu solutions for it uh, where you could, you know, test different things out. It's not uncommon for an engineer to go from one team to another uh, just because their interest is, you know, shifted over time. So the two solutions I mentioned real quickly is basically number one, uh, start a side project with your coding interests and see if it's something temporary or if it becomes something that is really, really big then you could find a way to commit to it for the next couple of years. Um, the number two solution is talk to the people involved into uh, why your day-to-day -day work is not your coding interest. And in that case, it's so much better to tackle the problem as a team instead of a, you know, as an individual. So the next question is, what are the main differences between tech in different industries you've worked in? Um, that's a great question. Again, <laughs> I got to think about this. So um, I've worked in the graphic design industry and then I worked into the events industry, and now I'm working in the health industry. So um, yeah, they're very, very vastly different. But surprisingly enough, uh, I think the day-to-day -day work of a software engineer uh, in either of those industries might be quite similar, as in we all have deadlines anyways, we're still building software. So uh, I think the bigger picture of a software engineer's role in you know, different industries is quite similar. So, um, but the thing is, what could be really interesting is what is the difference in the tech behind each one of them? So when I was working in the graphics design industry, um, it was quite a balance, actually. There was existing projects that has been going on for years and years and years where you would just basically be writing raw HTML for a while. But I was also fortunate to be part of a, when you start a new project, then you kind of get this opportunity of using new technologies to you know, build, your, build your project. Um, so the tech behind that, just the mindset, is uh, it was a balance between you could use new stuff like React if you wanted, uh, but there was also a lot of stuff which is just vanilla HTML. So I think at the end of the day, the importance is just making sure that uh, the front-end code is super clean so that you know, whenever your clients look at it, they, if they notice a the detail, uh, they appreciate it as opposed to pointing out that it's not a good detail. Um, so yeah, I think that was basically what I felt like when I was there. Uh, but when you get to the events industry, uh, I think the priorities were very different. Um, Tech-wise, we had to use a lot of different techs to handle, you know, more than just front-end features. So if we had to, you know, build a support for a new database or something like that, that kind of tech was very different. Uh, not saying that the graphic design industry doesn't support any databases or anything, but the priority wasn't there. I think the priority was definitely the focus on putting a lot more front-end technology and making sure that we support different kind of animations, uh, support different kind of color palettes, even getting the font in was quite important. Uh, so there was a lot more thought behind those kind of, you know, objectives as opposed to the events industry is, 
yeah, depending on the team, you definitely want to enforce those kind of same standards in terms of like, oh, every marketing material we put for this event has to be exactly on this line. But um, I think the, the work I was involved uh, when I was in the events industry is a lot more logistics bit in terms of keeping track of, you know, all the events that was happening and keeping track of, you know, all the, all the customers that we had. So um, tech-wise, I feel like there's a lot more emphasis in, you know, making sure that the logistics is great behind it uh, as opposed to what I was doing at the graphics uh, design company. And uh, if we talk about the shift into the health industry, which is what I'm in at the moment, um, it's still very similar in terms of like, we still got to make sure that we keep, uh, sorry, very similar to the events industry. So um, if we're talking about keeping tracks of inquiries in the events industry, then right now we're keeping track of the encounters in the health industry. So every time a patient goes see a doctor, it's kind of the same flow that they would go to. They would go through different processes and then we keep track of that. So logistics wise, there's a lot of similarity in the tech. Uh, which means that we get to use, you know, same modern stacks uh, to to build your database. Sorry, database uh, backend, and then if you want to expose anything to the user, then you just build a, an app for your front end purposes. Um, but I think a good detail to notice for the tech in the health industry is that the importance of having your infrastructure very, very, very secure is definitely a lot more uh, predominant in the health industry. So. Uh, just because a lot of, I don't know if it's because it's in the States or just because, uh, you know, we're talking about patient information that is very, very heavy on the privacy. So uh, tech-wise, there are, are a lot more measures to make sure that all the information is permitted for only certain users and, you know, all that different fun stuff. So uh, the main difference is, I guess, as a big picture is uh, tech-wise, a lot more focus on the front-end bit for the graphic designs industry. For the events industry, I feel like it's a lot more logistics where you got to have the right infrastructure for that. And tech-wise in the health industry is going super hardcore on the security and privacy issues. All right, what do we have next? Have you ever spent a whole workday in the office pretending to work but actually doing something else? If so, what? <laughs> All right, is somebody trying to call me out here? <laughs> Um, to be completely honest, I've never spent a day doing something that was not work-related, um, just because I was fortunate enough, again, to be working on projects that are, you know, always interesting and having a problem to solve and, uh, you know, they're, they're challenging and coming up with a solution is probably something that I, I personally enjoy. Um, and I find it really hard to be actually doing something else that is not tracked. I mean, not that anybody's breathing down your neck when you're coding stuff, but uh, I think a lot of times uh, most teams are quite in sync in terms of who's working on what and the pr like the progress along of how far you're uh, in the middle of that ticket specifically. So um, unfortunately, I haven't spent a whole day <laughs> uh, pretending to work. And um, yeah, I guess it's more... Uh, a lucky thing where I don't really notice these kind of moments where, oh, I wish I was not doing these uh, this ticket or I wish I was doing something else at that time. So yeah, so I don't have any stories of me pretending to work doing something else. So the next question is, what are the right questions to ask when sourcing a developer for a particular project to make sure they know what they're doing? Um, the answer is, <laughs> you never know if they're gonna be good or not. <laughs> No, but there's actually a lot of uh, questions that you could ask to have a good indication 
on if they're, you know, somewhat capable of doing what uh, you're expecting them to. So uh, if I'm running this through on top of my head real quickly is I think number one that is quite important is ask them if they've built something similar before. Um, I think that's going to save you a lot of headache uh, down the line. Um, a second question that you could ask them is what kind of technologies they've used before. Um, just because it's quite important to keep up with, I guess, the latest technologies that work. So if they're used to using technologies that has been used for the past 20, 30 years that hasn't really been changed, and it's really hard to find somebody else to work on it after that they've finished working on it, then uh, that might be, you know, kind of like a little red flag if ever it comes to that point. So um, even if you're, you yourself is not savvy enough to know what kind of technology, I think it's good to consult even just a quick Google search to see what is the modern technologies being used. And if the person that you're sourcing ends up, uh, you know, listing a couple of them and that's the plan of tackling your, your project, then I guess that's a good indicator. So uh, knowing a little bit about the new technology and what they're planning to use is definitely something good to clarify to begin with. And um, I think number three in terms of a good question to ask uh, when you're sourcing a developer would be, what is their guesstimate on how long the project is going to take? Um, I think you yourself should already have an idea of how much time you want to be investing into this project. And if they say something similar, then it's good that you're both in sync. But if they happen to say something completely wildly different, then um, I guess it's good to investigate why exactly uh, it's so different. Uh, maybe invest a little bit of time in clarifying uh, if they understand all the feature required of that project. Uh, and then just really check out if it's reasonable to keep on going forward with uh, sourcing this developer. So I guess those are kind of few ones, but there's definitely so much more uh, that you could be asking. All right, so the next question is, what information do I need to have ready for development of a new feature before contacting a developer? Um, maybe I should have answered this before the other question. <laughs> um, so in terms of what information do you want to have before starting to you know, hire a new developer. Um, I think it would be, number one for me is having some visuals, any kind of designs, any kind of animations. Uh, those are super useful just because you're not kind of like making the other person imagine what it looks like. So that's super useful to have on hand uh, before the first meeting. Um, the second one would be a clear, I guess, kind of short answer to what your project goal is. So. Um, if you're sourcing a developer to build yourself like a shopping cart website kind of thing where you could buy clothes and everything, then just be quite concise. Be it's a, you know, a website that lets you pick clothes, put them in a basket, and you could check out and you could pay through it and you know, really follow the whole process. So uh, just having a clear goal into what that project is in a really short, concise term, that'd be great. And, um, and I think the other thing that should be prepared before uh, these kind of first meetings would be a list of every single feature required of that website. Um, I think that's what people would be expecting in that case, as in uh, if we take the example again of like, you know, a shopping cart website where you could buy clothes and everything. Uh, the list of features would be along the lines of, oh yeah, um, you should have a page that shows all the products you should have. And now even that question is not even specific enough. You should be saying like, you should have a page that shows you all the handbags, but then if you filter them by price, they're able to display the highest to lowest or the lowest to highest. So uh, I think the level of details is quite important here for each functionality that you write. So um, really listing every single one of those 
functionality of your website, uh, being able to have a cart where you save your items as you shop, being able to check out, uh, being able to accept payment, having them explicitly listed are going to you know, define some of the constraint and rules that uh, shouldn't be a surprise to the developer when they're working on it. So, And also, please don't forget to mention uh, the timeline. So what you should have prepared is how much time you have to do this kind of stuff. And I guess this is kind of the right place to figure out what's your own budget to, to, to be investing in this project. So all that kind of calculations, all those kind of numbers should be crunched before even the first meeting. And uh, I think it's really good to emphasize and make it clear on what kind of timeline that you're working on. Okay, well, that was a lot of heavy tech stuff, like techie questions. But um, yeah, let's just close off with like all the fun random questions that I've been asked. If you could travel back in time, when would you go? Um, I don't know, man. I don't know enough about history. I've, I've never been great in all the different eras. Like people would say like, oh, yeah, it's cool to go back to the pirate era where you could like, you know, travel the seven seas. But a lot of people died from whatever diseases they had in the ship. So I didn't want to go back then. So I think there's no better era than, you know, living in the current moment. So my answer would be I'll travel back in time to whenever I was born exactly and just live my life again. Uh, what a boring answer, but this is what this is for. Um, the next question is, what makes you optimistic for the future? Um, for me, what I'm really optimistic about, the near future is just like all the cool, cool technology, sorry, uh, that are coming out that we get to experience. So um, I personally don't use it, but when people starting having wireless charger and they don't have to plug their phone anymore, it's cool to witness it. Not saying that I participate in all of that, but, you know, uh, I'm glad to have seen it. Uh, all the, you know, wireless not wireless, sorry, all the electric cars that we have nowadays. So all the Teslas coming out and all the rivalry that's coming out for that, that's really cool in terms of what we're capable of doing. Uh, I'm still waiting for an electric motorbike. So that is definitely something that I'll be keeping track of. So those are like the new future stuff. Um, but if we're talking about longer term, uh, in terms of what I'm being optimistic about is I just, you know, want to see more and more techie things happening that benefit uh, social issues at the end of the day so if we're talking about technologies that'll make you feel safer at home like ring then that's great but i can't think on top of my head any other technology specifically that uh you know has a direct impact like that so what i'm optimistic for the future is people building out technologies that will benefit uh you know social issues all right what do we got here we got uh what's the stupidest thing i bought I don't know. I don't really buy many, many stuff. I'm not a big clicker online that instantly gets me, you know, packages from Amazon every two seconds on my desk. But I think uh, the first thing that popped in my mind when you uh, asked this question was the stupidest thing I bought is I remember my first paycheck ever from my first job. Uh, I spent it on a set of headphones, V-Modas. Uh, I think they costed like 300 bucks Canadian at the end. It was so stupid expensive. Uh, but fortunately, I've used them for years and years and years, so it wasn't that bad of a you know investment. But it was definitely something stupid that I shouldn't have bought on my first paycheck. <laughs> um, if you could tell your ten-year-old self one thing, what would it be? Just keep on living your life, man. Uh, I don't really want to mess around with my ten-year-old self. I don't want to give him ideas of doing something different because uh, I think yeah, just keep on doing whatever you think is right, whether it's right or not. Just because. Um, at the end of the day, you are responsible for your own decisions. And, uh, most of the time, if you do right decisions, you feel very satisfied, satisfied and, you know, uh, accomplished from it. So just keep doing you don't, don't try to bend over rules for somebody else and, uh, lie to yourself. <laughs> 
Um, how did I learn to ride a motorcycle? <laughs> so I've been speaking to a couple of people about this. Where uh, ever since I moved to California, well, you guys know it's completely crap in here. The Bay Area, the transportation sucks. So I wasn't super into <clears throat> sorry, uh, wanting to invest into a car. So the middle ground was to get a motorbike. Um, but I'd never had a license before. So uh, the solution is I spoke to a couple of people, and you basically do this class uh, that is over a weekend. And uh, it's a two-day full thing. It's, you know, you get a couple hours uh, theory in class where you learn the logistics of a motorbike and everything. And then you got about 10 hours on a parking lot riding motorcycles. So you just do that. Uh, and then if you pass that class, then you just show up to the DMV and you get your full motorcycle license. So that's kind of how my experience started with riding motorcycles. Anyways, that was the last question of this AMA. Thanks again to everybody who sent me uh, these questions. And yeah, thank you guys for listening to this episode. Catch you guys on the next one.